are seeing Jesus being uh, questioned with a view to trying to get him to say something wrong or to trap him or to show his incapacity in some way and each group sort of had their favorite approach on that and every time Jesus comes out smelling like a rose you know they, they it's just amazing you know he not only manages to evade their traps but he actually teaches things that are fabulous in the process so we've seen uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians with the question about paying taxes and then we saw the Sadducees with the question about <coughs> the uh, woman who was married to seven brothers and its impact on the resurrection, and now one of the scribes tries his hand at that. See how he fares. So, chapter 12, verse 28 to 34. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the length, the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Okay. So, what's the question the scribe asked? What's the greatest commandment? Yeah. Boy, wouldn't that be a tough question? Think about if you didn't know how Jesus was going to answer that. What would you maybe have speculated could have been the answer? What's the greatest commandment? Not to kill. Yeah, not to kill. You know, that's the ultimate bodily harm. I wonder if most Jews would have said... That might even be bigger because that's, you know, dealing with God. Or, yes, that would be important because that affects everybody in their family relationship. Not making any graven images? You know, he really does come down on idolatry. I mean, from a Jewish standpoint, the Sabbath day (laughs) seems to have been the one they really you know, emphasize the most. And, you know, you could probably debate that somewhat. I can see getting into a pretty good argument about, well, is this one more important or is that one or whatever. Almost anything you said on that, I think I could come up with some kind of argument to put you down and say, no, it's not that one, it's this one. You know, but what Jesus does is amazing. He doesn't go to say one of the Ten Commandments, which surely that's where you would have thought. And he really doesn't exactly go to what we might have thought of as so much being a commandment. What does he go to? (laughs) Yeah, what did you say? The preamble. The preamble, that's exactly right. Deuteronomy 6, and to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Maybe they could have seen that so much as a commandment as just kind of a... I don't know, principle or something like that, but really, 
That is the greatest commandment. Why is that the greatest commandment? Because if you follow that one, you do all the others. Yeah, it's kind of the the underlying principle that encompasses all the others, really. It seems to me like, to some extent, all the other commandments are sort of commentary and explanation on how you actually implement loving God with everything you've got. And so Jesus really shows great insight. Um, that's, that's really helpful for us to think about. I mean, if that's the greatest commandment, how do we do with that one? I mean, that surely ought to be, you know, a prime importance to us. And, and did you notice how he said to love God? By your heart, Yeah. What's the word he's emphasizing there? All. All. Repeats it four times. I mean, you just love God with everything you have. You know, we probably need to think a whole lot more about that. And work a whole lot harder on that. I don't think when we are coming up with commandments that we would wish to stress the most that we give that kind of priority to serving God. I think if you uh, maybe listened to and cataloged all of the commandments that were um, addressed in sermons, I bet love wouldn't have nearly the frequency of even some other relatively less important commands, you know. Um... And when we just focus on kind of these external manifestations, when we don't go back to the principle of loving God as the main thing, we really miss it. And then Jesus added bonus. You know, he didn't, he wasn't content to give him the most important commandment. He gives him number two. What's number two? Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Which, that also is a fundamental command. It embraces really then any command that God gives about interpersonal relationship. I think it's interesting that Jesus numbers these one and two. Because sometimes people reverse them and make loving your neighbor more important than loving God. I think a lot of times people do that. And that's not right. Loving God is first, then loving your neighbors yourself. I've also heard this. See what you think about this. Uh, I remember growing up, uh, one particular preacher who, who, who had a sermon on this, really cool sermon too. He talked about the three loves that God commands. To love God, to love your neighbor, and to love yourself. Because you're to love your neighbor as yourself. So that means God's telling you to love yourself. That's not as important as loving God or loving your neighbor, but that's also important. What would you say about that? say he uses that as a given to, to argue the other point. Exactly. He's just taking it for granted that people do love themselves. He's not commanding us to love ourselves, nor is that necessary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> probably not even advisable. I mean, you know, I, I think what you see in the Bible, really, is sort of discouragements on exaggerations, at least, of loving yourself. I mean, there's lots of passages talking about denying self and things like that. And, uh, you know, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, 
For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, and a whole bunch of other bad stuff. And the first thing on that bad list is lovers of self. So I think the Bible probably says more against loving self than it does for loving self, other than, you know, he's just saying, you need to put your neighbor as high as you put yourself. Most people do love themselves, whether they should or not. So I don't think this is anything, I don't think this is trying to touch the issue of self-respect and self-esteem and all of that, of which there is something to be said, but certainly not what people say today. Uh, You know, there is a certain amount of self-respect that we do gain when we know God loves us and when we've done the right thing. But that's sort of a byproduct, not so much the goal. Uh, You know, really, we almost gain more self-respect when we forget ourselves in seeking to serve God and serve others. But today you'd think that was just the major topic of the Bible in some circles. So, comments and questions through 31 on Jesus' answer. many other places that talk about uh, instruction on how to love your neighbor, you know, brotherly kindness and and putting others before yourself and being a servant. But there's not a lot of instruction about how to love yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. Put yourself before others. Uh, Give yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that would really be kind of odd if we were supposed to love ourselves. You wonder what that would mean, what that would look like. Yeah, this guy turned it into, you know, trying to promote self-esteem and self-respect and things like that. It was really a cool lesson. I liked it at that point when I was a teenager. He used the acronym JOY, Jesus, Others, You. So he's teaching the order, but he really stressed a lot the importance of loving yourself. And I think he missed it. <laughs> but at the time, I liked it. I'm so. <laughs> he missed I would have thought he would have pulled out, you know, where it says love the brethren, fear God, honor the king, and said, God commands you to love the brethren, um, as opposed to just your neighbors. I mean, God says especially the brethren. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That would be a true one. Uh, I think you really wanted to get that idea in there, of loving yourself. As I look back, that seemed to have almost been the focus of the lesson, uh, although he talked about the first two. But anyhow. Gary, do you think there's any point in trying to uh, spend much time understanding exactly what he means by with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or just see them as representative of just your your entire being? Well, I think that's what they do represent. Now, I don't think it's necessarily bad to stop and try to think about, you know, each of those in a different way, but I kind of doubt that he means them in such a different way. Mm-hmm. I think that's a way of just really saying with everything you've got. By the time you get all that, what else is there? But but I'm not against somebody, you know, you know, meditating on that somewhat. Uh, I don't have anything really good to say about that, but I, I can see that you know somebody might be able to come up with something. You know. What what was the purpose of this question? It appears maybe sincere, or was he? At first, trying to... I suspect he was trying to, uh, you know, come up with something that, you know, he could have maybe argued with Jesus about. In the parallel in Matthew 22, 35, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. So I kind of, 
this is kind of a stumped uh, religious teacher kind of a question. And if he says, whatever, you know, don't steal, they'd have probably said, oh, but it's more important this one, you know, or whatever. I can see, but I think when Jesus says this, you know, this guy's like, wow, that's true. <laughs> you know, you, you've said the right thing. I mean, really? You know, loving God and loving your neighbor, that's a whole lot more than the offerings and sacrifices. I mean, that that's really the basic principles. I, I think Jesus, you know, more or less, um, you know, humbled and almost amazed this guy. And Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I mean, I think perhaps he had a good enough heart, even though he was testing Jesus, to recognize the uh, wisdom of that answer when he heard it. And sometimes we can start out testing and come away believing, so... He almost did, at least. Jesus, Jesus didn't point out, um, I mean, looking at some of the other examples, you know, he immediately said, why are you testing me? Or, or I'll ask you a question, or... This was a better question, even if it was a test. A very, I guess, I guess the result <coughs> each response is somewhat different, so it's just another... That's what I'd say. I mean, it is a good question, even if it was for a bad motive. You know, the question about that woman with the seven husbands wasn't even a good question. <laughs> that was stupid. You know, just, I mean, uh, Jesus had no patience, really, with those hypothetical questions that are just designed to try to concoct a scheme to overthrow what the Bible says. But this is a good question, even if he's wanting to test Jesus by it. Why does he include the first part of that? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's just the first part of that passage. And Deuteronomy six. I mean, right. I, I'm not. I suppose that that maybe has a little bit of significance, just from the standpoint of considering the oneness of God, the the absolute uniqueness of God. Then we ought to love Him with everything. I mean, I think there's kind of a tie-in, but still, uh, I mean, the scribe does the same thing when he repeats it. Right. Almost like there was some. Significance, or a, or as if that was part of the commandment. Well, he, I good. said that you, you stated that he truly he is one, and there is no one else besides him. Now, I don't know if he was implying that from that. Yeah, you know, or if that's what that specifically, you know, is that what that means? I think it is. Yeah, I think that is a fair explanation of what that means. And that's a significant point. I think the Jews would have tied that whole passage together like that, as we sometimes do. Sometimes we quote something, we're really quoting it for one part, but we quote the whole thing, not that we're so much making a point about the first part, but it's, it's involved in that. So you understand God is unique, then you love him uniquely. You wouldn't divide your love among several gods. There is one God, so you love him with everything. Otherwise, you'd have to divide it among several. You couldn't love God with everything. At least that's the way I would see that. Isn't it also sort of a... sort of a call to worship? A call to listen? I mean, that the first part, you know. Giving it more emphasis in that way. Yes, it is. Uh, it is. Hero is. I mean, but, it, but uh, yeah, I think it is almost. Uh, I mean, he would say that for something that was really important. You know, listen. I, I had a gym teacher's listen up. 
You know, it's kind of the idea of that. Other thoughts? It's too bad they didn't ask you any more questions. Why didn't they? You're getting well, at least you have to learn something. <laughs> yeah. Well, but that's not their uh, purpose exactly. <laughs> they were trying to uh, discredit Jesus, and you know uh, it doesn't seem to be working that way. You know, it's like uh, you know these presidential debates. It could <laughs> be that you know putting some guy on the spot over and over again makes him look better. If he does well with that, it's hard to do well with that. But, you know, you might decide, I think I'd better quit putting him on the spot. You know, it's giving him a chance to show how, you know, talented he is or whatever. So I think they were like, this tactic is uh, a loser with Jesus. Probably also they probably ran out of questions. Those were their best ones, I suspect. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if, these ones, if these ones don't work, what would you expect for the others? Even the I'm always telling them I didn't care that. What? You can't say what? These ones. Oh, well. Keep saying it. <laughs> Maybe you can't, but it sounded good to me. <laughs> Could it also have been because Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and I think this was the first time he'd said that to any of his questioners, that they were kind of like, ooh, he's making, kind of making a judgment and what if I ask him a question and he doesn't say that? I mean, I don't know if they were looking to be part of the kingdom, but it's sort of like a stamp of approval or something. I think it was to some extent that. Uh, I don't know how they exactly felt about him saying that, but I think he was complimenting the man's attitude. You know, he showed by his response to Jesus' answer that he was more fair-minded about this. He was willing to acknowledge that Jesus gave the right answer. Other thoughts? Jesus tells him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What exactly did he mean when he said, said that? Well, I would take the kingdom of God here as the the sphere of God's rule or reign. So he's close to coming into the messianic rule, messianic in submission to the Messiah. Uh, I mean, he'd been preaching the kingdom of God and it was the idea of what he was going to, to do. He was going to begin to rule and reign. And, you know, in some ways looking at it, if you submit, then you're in his kingdom. If you don't, you're outside of his kingdom, even though there's another sense in which his kingdom rule is overall. It's kind of a twofold reign of Christ. There's a kingdom over his willing subjects, and then there's the kingdom over the whole universe. <laughs> so I think he's saying, you know, he was close to actually being in the sphere of willing subjects to God's rule, to, to his rule as the Messiah. And he demonstrated that willingness to learn and to listen to the answer and and all of that, all, displaying those qualities that would you know, push him forward in the line to get into the kingdom or something. Kingdom ride. Other thoughts? Well, after a day of questions, now comes the question of the day. 
35 to 37. When Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And a large crowd enjoyed listening to him. So Jesus said, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now that's what they said about the Messiah. The Christ means the Messiah. You know, that, that he was the son of David. I mean, that's what the promise had been back to David in 2 Samuel 7. However, David in Psalm 110 calls him his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So David calls him Lord, my Lord. So in what sense is he his son? See the riddle? You know, everybody knew the Messiah was to be David's son. But actually in Psalm 110, David calls him his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit and rule. So, if he's David's son, how can Psalm 110 call him David's Lord? That's a pretty good uh, puzzle, don't you think? And there's no answer given. Do you know the answer to that question? Was the Christ David's son? Yes. Was he David's Lord? Yes. How? The dual nature of Christ, of, of, of Jesus Christ. I mean, in a physical <coughs> sense, he was the physical descendant of David, and in a spiritual sense, since he was, well, God, so that would make him Lord. What was their maybe biggest objection to Jesus? Just another man. <clears throat> yeah, and that therefore he was committing what sin? Blasphemy. Blasphemy, claiming uh, prerogatives that belong only to God. But if they had understood the answer to this riddle, it would have solved their problem. The Messiah was supposed to be both man, David's son, and God, David's Lord. Their failure to understand the answer to this question was the reason they objected to Jesus. Jesus is not just trying to stump them. Jesus is asking them the question that would lead them to solve the main problem they have with Jesus is claims to deity. Yet they can't answer. Probably didn't want to answer. But if they would have answered, that would have that would have really resolved the big problem. So Jesus answers theirs, they don't answer his. Comments and thoughts on that. You understand that idea? Forty-four. 
And in his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which amount to a cent. And calling his disciples to them, to him, he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Jesus is warning about the scribes. It was a scribe who'd come in 28. What's he warning about regarding them? show? Yes! What things did they do for show? Long robes. Tried to dress for success? Or at least um, in a way that marks them out as being especially holy? What else? Seems like they walked around looking for greetings. What what kind of greetings? The the respectful kind that you, you mean, you know, Oh, fine, sir. Thank you for walking past my stall today, is what they were looking for. Yeah, they wanted some kind of title, almost, of honor, glory. And what else? Chief seats and places of honor. Yeah. We don't do that as much anywhere as they did. In Brazil, that's more common. Even in church, church is probably a little more common, not necessarily among brethren, but, but then in a lot of churches, there'd be some of that here, too, but but, you know, that there are certain places that they're marked for the, you know, important people. And if you sit there, then that proves you're somebody. <laughs> and things like that. And uh, you even see them, for appearance sake, offering long prayers. You know, trying to impress people with their, you know, great devotion to God. I mean, they're, they're, they're wanting to be honored. They're wanting glory. You know, that's just not at all the mentality that the Lord wants from us. We're not supposed to be trying to get attention, trying to elevate ourselves above others. The exact opposite of what he said was the greatest command. They love themselves above God. Yeah, you're right. I wonder if we don't do this too much. You know, we want honor, we want people to respect us, we want them to be impressed by us. How many things do we do for show? How many things do we do because we want other people to to think highly of us? Do we ever have more to say in a public prayer than we've ever had to say in a private prayer? <laughs> you know, do we think a lot about, you know, how people, if people are really showing us proper respect and honor, things like that. One more angle of, of 3840 I haven't dealt with, the devouring widow's houses, but, but on these other points, what comments and questions do you have? In verse 38, when it says, then he said to them in his teachings, is it talking specifically to his disciples or the people that are standing around him from verse uh, 37? Don't know, in mine it just says in his teaching he was saying. <laughs> so I don't know. Probably trying to warn the crowd 
you know, trying. I mean, you know, they would have thought of the scribes as being the pattern. You know, son, when you grow up, be like a scribe. <laughs> well, they don't. Jesus doesn't want them to, you know, see value in these characteristics. Can I but wonder if there was some scribes in the crowd? Well, probably. <laughs> Need some friends. Yeah, well, Jesus uh, had a habit of offending people. Is it the term we most normally use, offend? Some of us have been studying uh, a book on marriage called Love and Respect, and it emphasizes what Ephesians 5 says about uh, wives respecting their husbands. And so it's another, perhaps, example of how Satan can take something that is good and necessary and and to an excess it becomes an evil. You know, to for a man to to desire respect and to need respect and for that to be fulfilling is a natural thing. And especially from a wife. But then to pursue that in excessive means, you know, to where as was said that we you now love ourselves more than we love God has then becomes uh, something that was good and appropriate, and now it's become unnatural. And it's become, it's put things out of their proper order and proper place. I wonder if that's, you know, maybe an, another example of what we see happening here. That's an interesting thought. Um, my initial thinking is these guys were. We certainly were, were seeking exaggerated respect. That, that's for sure. But, but they were seeking people's respect and honor. Now, it's true that wives ought to respect their husbands. I'm not sure it's so true that husbands ought to seek that. I agree that, you know, God understands the nature of men and women, and it's good for men to receive that from their wives, and it's good for women to give that to their husbands. But I don't know that a husband, even in a marriage relationship, is trying to act in such a way as to get her to honor and respect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that really ought to come from her. I think, in general, you know, we shouldn't be focused on what people think about us. That's not our goal. I think so often we make it our goal. People do religion for attention and for glory, not for God. So we need to not have as our purpose wanting others to be impressed with us, but wanting God's will to be done. I think too often we think too much about the crowd in what we do, and that that's detrimental. Because it usually leads to, you know, these kinds of things. Even maybe small things we do to try to position ourselves in such a way as to look good. I mean, kind of wanting certain people to notice us and, and wanting people, you know, wanting to figure out ways we can get people to, to think highly of us. I mean, I think I used this the other day, but a boy was telling me uh, a little, a few, a few weeks ago that, you know, whenever he led a public prayer, he would, he, he would always think, how can I say this in a way that people will compliment me? Mm-hmm. And he's a great kid. I like him a lot. But it's like, wow, that is a struggle sometimes, isn't it? 
And, uh, you know, I was just talking to an, another boy um, who's a good guy, talking about how he's got a friend who's basically a, you know, um, what would you say, uh, the word for that, uh, somebody on the same level. Peer. Peer. Yeah, that's the word. A peer of his. I kept trying to say par. A peer of his. Um, and his peer always gets asked to preach sermons or to lead prayers or to lead songs a whole lot more than what he does. And he's really struggling with that. Well, you know, his struggle with that is largely that he feels so inadequate and inferior. But what's our solution to feeling inadequate and inferior? Well, when we, when we feel that way, what are we thinking about? Ourselves. <clears throat> important. You know, how adequate we think we are, it's important that we let God use us in whatever way he wants us to be. I mean, it's like the, it's like the one part of the body saying, well, because I'm not that part, then I'm not a part of the body. You know, why do we all want to be the parts that everybody looks up to, everybody adorns? You know, I mean, what do we pay, pay most attention to in our body? Do we pay more attention to, you know, our liver or our hair? <laughs> A good bit more attention, except for Chris, to our hair. <laughs> you know, uh, most of us have more hair than we have liver, I guess. But I don't, uh, I don't look at either one in the <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, you could live without hair. You can't live without your liver. You know, but I mean, it's like that in the body. You know, we're trying to get attention, and it's probably the members who aren't getting attention who are worthwhile, who, who, who contribute something more vital. You know, preachers wanting to, you know, make sure they, you know, have plenty of meetings and, you know, are able to write for the important papers or whatever it is preachers do to try to you know exalt themselves I mean it's like how empty how how totally wrong for us to ever even think about that we're not thinking about the Lord in that we're thinking about ourselves and almost abusing the Lord's service as an instrument to exalt ourselves which is really outrageous other thoughts on all that more probably more difficult for teenagers because of the peer pressure. Once you de- once you decide that you really don't care what your peers think, it's easier. But at that age, you know, you've got to have the latest clothes, the shoes, the cell phone, the, the way you talk, the way you walk, the way you wear your pants halfway down to your knees. <laughs> you know, I mean, just I mean, bad examples. Think how stupid that is. Yet, because someone else does it or might look at you and, and get some attention, that's the type of thing. We get pretty controlled by what we think people are going to think about us, how to get their acceptance or attention or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's a great example. I can't help but think if we cared half as much, if we cared have as much as we do about ourselves, about the Lord, we'd be so much better servants of Him. Yeah, we ought to want Him to be pleased with us, not people to be pleased with us. <clears throat> well, the other thing He says, who devour widows' houses. Yummy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Gingerbread, perhaps. <laughs> what in the world does he mean who devour widows' houses? says they use their positions as jurists to adjust claims against wealthy widows or to get them to bestow on them their estates. The second part of that is better. Yeah. These are the scribes. These are not the politicians so much or the judges or the rulers. These are the scribes. They're the religious people. So it seems to me they devoured widows' houses by coming up with ways of getting excessive contributions and donations from the widows, getting the widows to finance them and whatever. To me, that fits much more in the context of what the scribes would have been guilty of. I mean, that happens today, doesn't it? You know, I mean, as, you know, even sometimes very wealthy um, radio and television preachers, you know, solicit funds from poor widows who scraping together money to eat on, and yet, you know, they tell them, well, you know, you give, you give to God's work, and God will give it back to you more than what you gave, and all that kind of stuff, just trying to build people out of what little bit they've got left. I mean, I think that's what Jesus is saying about the scribes. And I think the next section is an illustration of that. Now I know this is not the orthodox view on this. But what does Jesus see when he comes and observes the people putting money into the treasury? And what would Jesus say about that? Is this a wonderful thing that the scribes have developed this system where the rich people put in large sums and this poor widow puts in everything she has to live on? Or is this not a prime example of what Jesus was saying in verse 40? Jesus is condemning the value system that would perhaps practically, practically require a, an impoverished widow to fork over her last dime for a meal. Isn't that an outrage? You know, if Jesus opposed the devouring of the widow's houses, how could he be happy with what he saw here? Here are these rich people putting in impressive sums. They had plenty to get... And they've got this poor widow giving two pennies, practically. For what? What's she putting this into? Into the temple treasury, I'm assuming. I'm assuming so. Would you please read on? As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? 
not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. What's she giving this money for? It's a how ironic, what a total waste. This whole structure is going to come down. Look over at Luke's parallel. In Luke 20, verse 47. 2047 describes who devour widows' houses. And then 21.1, the next verse, he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury and saw a poor widow putting in two small copper, copper, copper coins. And he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. The ultimate in, I don't know, the ultimate in, in unjust, futile giving. A system that would get a poor widow giving her last two mites for a building that's going to be torn down, adorned with all these gifts, but worthless. Now again, I realize that's not the way that's usually taken. But I think the usual explanation is not correct. But you can defend it if you want. Why would he say she's put in more than all that? Because she put in 100%. She put in everything she had. Right. So is yeah. that neutral? Is that negative? Or I think is it positive? It, I think it's negative. I think here you've got these rich guys really not putting in nearly what this poor widow was. The system they've got gets this poor widow to give everything more than these rich people who had so much. I ought to go the other way. I ought to be those who got the most give the most. They've got a system in which the poor widow gives more than the others. If she's being duped, then they're coming out and they're actually ending up on the on the smart side then, though, because they're not being duped. Yes, but they're the dupers. <laughs> and Jesus is condemning them for it. Yeah, What's they, he saying about her, though? I don't think he's saying anything about her, per se, other than that she's the victim of this scheme. But, but let me play the other side of this a little bit. What if we use the, the typical argument and we say, well, Jesus is seeking to commend this widow and to give her as an example. Do we ever believe in this example? What would we say if there was a poor widow in the congregation who was living on Social Security and she gave it all? Not a wise move. We wouldn't, we wouldn't really think that was what she ought to do, would we? 
know, even if you had a rich person who gave everything they had. They had nothing left to live on. Now, we're not talking about giving, you know, what they got in the bank. We're saying she has nothing to live on. So, you, you, we, we say this is a, a great example, but we would never want somebody to then not have anything to eat, not have anything to live on, because they gave it all. So, I mean, from my perspective, we say this is an example, but we don't use it for the example that it is. If it's an example of anything, it's an example of giving everything you've got to live on. So I don't think Jesus was blaming her. I think he's blaming the scribes. But I think he's illustrating what they were doing by what she was influenced to do and saying how pathetic. And if everyone followed her example, <laughs> then it's almost like this sounds kind of strange, I guess, but then everyone would be in need of benevolence. Yeah. And then where's that, you know, it doesn't... Or everybody's starved to death. Yeah. Not sure we you're supposed to have that whole 60s hippie commune thing going on. <laughs> Maybe, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think clearly none of us really think that that's what someone ought to do. We really don't believe. We, we admire, and I think, you know, in one sense you do admire somebody who was that willing to do something like that that she thought was right. You know, that's admirable. I don't think that's Jesus' point at all. I don't think he's really thinking of it from that standpoint. Yeah, it's, that's kind of amazing. But, but we would never, never say for somebody to do that. In fact, I think if somebody tried to, we'd discourage it. I think we'd say, no, don't do that. You need this. You know, okay, you can give. But, but don't give everything you've got. I mean, because then you can eat. You know, you need some of this for yourself. I think that's what we'd say. I think properly so. Which is not what some of those uh, televangelist-type folks would say. They would be, you know, give it all and just trust. And, and Absolutely. Kind of and I'll send you a, a, this beautiful inscribed wall thing of the Crystal Cathedral or whatever it is. Yeah, and your Golden Prosperity Cross and your Jesus Eyes Prayer Cloth and I got all of them. I got a whole collection. Uh, it's amazing. Um, they do it really bad in Brazil. Whoa! I mean, the, the fastest growing Brazilian church, the Igreja Universal do Reino de Deus, the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God, Oh, it's ridiculous. I mean, these are the buildings. They are the best lit things in all of Brazil. They are always on the main streets. They're beautiful. Not so ornate, but really nice looking buildings. They are filled every night. And they have the tithe. They have the double tithe and the triple tithe. They have the money for the holy water and for the water from the Jordan and, and for, oh, just all kinds of stuff. And I mean, they shake you down practically in the service. You know, it's just, I mean, whoa. And you contribute and then the basket comes around again. You know, and again. 
and you know you have to give because this is you know this is how God will make you prosperous and and I mean the the this is amazing it's a con man that runs this thing and you must say I mean they have exposed him when I lived there the the number three guy in that church defected he was the video man and he had all these videos they own their own TV station which is one of the most popular TV stations well he gave or sold or whatever these videos to the rival TV station who did this enormous expose. You've never seen anything like it. They showed this 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 owner of the church in Jumasedu on a football field with a bunch of his leading pastors. This is a church all over Brazil and even there's a few in the US and places where they're Brazilians. You know, saying, when you try when you when you get money out of him you know, you have to really get in their face. And you have to really, and he just like a football coach saying how you do it. And he even used kind of a vulgar expression. It wasn't obscene, but kind of like, you know, almost like, uh, you know, I don't know, give or or get gored or something like that. Just real gross kind of a thing. And, and you just, you know, and then they showed him in New York City at one of their churches, grin and holding a hundred dollar bill up to the video camera. And they proved that for some of their leading pastors, that they not only got a salary, but they got under the table commission on the revenues that were brought in. And that was when I lived there. I would say for three months, as I, on the bus, go by their big church buildings, I saw probably a 30% drop-off in the number of people there. And then it was over. And it's still the fastest-growing church in Brazil, as far as I know. It's amazing. Of course, the people there are looking for that. They want to be prosperous. They want, and they have the health blessings, the demon expulsion, and every night it's a different thing. You know, you know, it's, you know, for prosperity or for family or for prosperity or for healing or for prosperity. Or, yeah, they got different things they call it. That's some help thing. groups for everything. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a worship service for that. Do I? Or if they do the animal blessings too. I wouldn't be shocked if, if they have it. I'm sure they will when they think about it. They do all that stuff. I mean, it's the most superstitious sort of, oh, they got all this kind of stuff. It's it's just, it's it's catered to the Brazilian superstitions. It's really, it's, it's a very designed for Brazilians. Uh, because Brazilians are very superstitious. They grew up in spiritism, Catholicism. And so they believe in all this kind of stuff. And they've got it all. And... Uh, Actually, some of the things they teach, if you ever get around anything else, are semi-biblical. Um, they would teach baptism and things like that. Uh, but that's not important to them. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, um, let me say something else, and then I'll certainly do anything you want to with this. But, but if, if you ever come to accepting this view of this, do you see why our typical approach to Bible study hurts us. How many times have we ever read this little story about the widow in connection with the verse right before it about devouring widows' houses? In different paragraphs. Yeah. <laughs> or in connection with the next couple of verses that's in a different chapter <laughs> about how the temple will be torn down. You know, when you see things in context, it changes your view of them. You pull it out as a little moralizing lesson, and it makes sense. I used it that way plenty of times myself. 
But when you study it in context, to me it makes much more sense. For one thing, we don't believe, as I said, the passage as we as we use it. But much more importantly, how why wouldn't this be an illustration of what he says in verse 40? It certainly seems to be. And, and followed up in both contexts by Jesus saying it is useless. Should have brought my sermon on this, but I forgot. But I preached on this once or twice. Do you, but again, I mean, I certainly don't mean to uh, be disrespectful to anybody who wants to offer a different view. I will certainly listen. I, mean, I could, I could have changed to the wrong view, but it seems certainly seems right to me. It seems that whenever this is preached on with the traditional view. Someone, they have to, they say, did she put in, did she really put in all? No, that's, it's um, hyperbole or something. Oh, really? You know, that, that she didn't actually put in all. She just put in so much that it seemed like all, and, and or something like that. Hmm. That's just I, kind of a... I haven't heard that one before. That it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you're supposed to put all of your stuff in is the point of it. but I don't think anybody wants us to do that, but I don't usually hear anybody saying that. Well, isn't, isn't this great? She's so sacrificial and generous. And then we just go on without really connecting the dots and saying, so guys, give everything you got. But it seems to me like that really would be the application of this if, if this was the model for us. I always connected it in my mind to the greatest command, loving the Lord with all your heart and doing what you have to for him. That's what I always connected it to. And you're giving all you have. Yeah. That I think I would say that's, that would be a misapplication <laughs> of what it means to love God with all your heart. There were those that gave beyond their means, beyond their ability. Yes. But they it didn't. doesn't say that they gave all their they had to live on. Yeah. To might. Generous giving is certainly commended. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Even selling things to give and so forth. But I just I don't see this as a pattern of what's the right thing to do, but just a pattern of how this system abuses people. You might say you might, someone might argue what Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell all he had and give it to the poor. <laughs> I think the context is a different problem there. Yeah. <clears throat> I assume if he followed Jesus, he'd eat out of the common treasury at that point. He'd what? If he followed Jesus, he'd eat from the common treasury at that point. Yeah, I, I can see where you can see that, say that. Um, but I think I would see this as different, even from the standpoint she's giving to the temple treasury. It's not Jesus saying, give up the thing that you're more attached right, to. Right, that was his Lord. lesson there, more than right. the need to give it to any particular place or treasury. Right. As far as I know, there's not really an example in the Bible of somebody giving everything they had other than this one. They gave sacrificially, even sold things to give. You know, it's an impressive pattern. 
uh, in itself and challenging. But as a widow, would she have been subject to a temple tax? So it's that levied on the the males. I don't know the answer to that. It, I mean, just thinking of it as a a required tax versus mm -hmm. the a free will gift. Mm -hmm. What was the collection for? Was it required or was it? I think it's uh, required by the Jews, not necessarily required by the Old Testament law. I would I would take these as some of the votive gifts and offerings and things like that. Other comments? Well, chapter thirteen, verses one to four. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Can't you kind of uh, envision the setting? You know, you've got this impressive building on one of the, the disciples, almost kind of like a tourist here in Jerusalem, just awed by this and exclaiming over this. And, uh, you know, Jesus is much deeper, you know, than our kind of superficial amazement. You know, he said, do you see these great buildings? They're all going to come down. That's the that's the realistic truth. So Jesus doesn't give them long to, uh, you know, smooth over the beauty of the building. And what's their question? Questions? They want insight into when this is going to happen. Yeah, when is this going to be? I mean, that this is pretty shocking question, uh, quite a shocking uh, affirmation on Jesus' part. You know, when is this all going to be torn down? And what will be the sign that this is going to be torn down? This is a lot to take in. You would not have expected, as a Jew, this temple would be torn down like that. So when and what sign? And uh, we know, historically, a lot about this. Because we know that in the year 70 or so, Titus, who later became a Roman emperor, but was then a Roman general, uh, invaded and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. So this is about 40 years after Jesus says this, that this happens. We know the when, because we know it historically. They didn't know the when, so they're asking. Comments and questions on those four verses. Why did the Romans have to invade their own territory? <laughs> Well, because the Jews were rebelling, and they were, uh, I, I, I guess that's the best way, they're trying to squelch the rebellions, and oh, they had a bunch of pretend messiahs that were trying to lead revolts, and 
you know, this, that, and the other thing. So they were trying to, they, they were tired of dealing with the Jews. They decided just to, you know, destroy them, basically. Destroy the capital city, you know, re-spread re them out among other places and kill a whole batch of them in the process and try to, you know, quell the revolt. Other comments and questions? Would that application be more than just the temple and and what happened to it there? I mean, ultimately, any physical building is going to end up that way. Or reading too much into it to say, you know, do we do the same thing with our beautiful buildings and stained glass and you know, would Jesus say, one day there won't be one, there won't be one uh, brick <laughs> or whatever it is you use to build it? Upon that. That's an interesting point. Um, that's probably a, a, a valid thought that, you know, if something isn't going to last, then don't put so much attention and investment into it. I think that's a fair statement. Nothing here is going to last. It's all going to be torn down or burned up or whatever. So in that sense, nothing here really ought to get our maximum devotion. Um, Isn't that really his point? Because it doesn't seem like he's saying that exactly to lead into uh, prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, that's what they ask, but he's saying in response to look at these buildings. So it seems like that's almost more of his point and he goes on from there. I agree. That's a good point. Yeah, he's really, he's trying to get them to put their amazement into the perspective of the passing nature of this whole structure. And we need to do that same thing. And it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to put so much, you know, just so much of ourselves into something that won't last. Other thoughts? Well, Jesus is asked when and what sign. He really answers to begin by talking about things that were going to happen that really weren't the sign yet. You know, it'd be easy to, knowing this, jump at any little thing that happens. Imagine, oh, maybe this is going to happen now. So, um, five through eight. <clears throat> Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. For nations will rise against nations, and kingdoms against kingdoms, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. There will be the beginnings of sorrows. Okay. Now he says, don't be deceived by appearance. There's going to be a lot of people in these times that are going to be imposters. They're going to claim that they're the Messiah 
and mislead many. And there'll be wars and rumors of wars, and don't worry about that. And there'll be our conflicts among nations, and there'll be earthquakes, and there'll be famines. But in all this, these are just the beginnings of the birth pangs. It's not yet the end of Jerusalem. So he's really starting by talking about some things that will be happening during this period that really are not good signs, because there's a lot more stuff to happen after that. Uh, these, are, these things are, uh, you know, not signs of the end. Now it's ironic, because a lot of times people take passages like verses 7 and 8, and take these things that were not actually the signs of the end of Jerusalem, and say they are the signs of the end of the world. They commit a double error there when they do that. Uh, Again, man, it's so great to lift passages out of context, because then you can invent pretty much any doctrine you want and support it. Uh, But once you look at them in context, so often they don't say what they're made to say. Comments and thoughts to verse 8. Alright, well, I think this is probably a good spot to stop before we have to go any farther into this with uh, some of the uh, things that we need to look at. But, uh, look at chapter 13 for next time. Uh, Because this is a challenging chapter. A lot of things in it that are uh, interesting and variously understood. So we'll we'll work on it some and try to to understand it the best we can. And uh, appreciate your your comments and uh, thoughts to us. Encouraging to... (coughs) share all this together, and uh, Lord willing, I should be here for uh, probably about three more Thursdays before I'm not here for a while. I just heard this one.